Turn to 1 Kings chapter 9 with me. 1 Kings chapter 9. This, I believe, is a critical passage in our study of Solomon's life. Um, I would argue that it's probably one of two of the most important passages in this book as it relates to Solomon. I think chapter 9 is probably one of the most important, our passage today, and then chapter 11, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. Two probably are the most critical. Um, When we look at this passage this morning, it's going to break down into two parts fairly naturally. The first nine verses or so make up the first part, and it's the Lord's second appearance to Solomon. Um, That's partly what makes this such an important passage. However, the next verses, verses 10 through 28, focus on Solomon's duties and accomplishments as king. And one of the challenges we face as we get to this passage, and it's one that I I struggled with, is what in the world do the first nine verses have to do with the rest? Occasionally we we come to a passage like that, and we usually try to break down passages um, based on how the verses sort of group together. And so you look at a chapter and you go, well, these, these, you know, so many verses fit real good together and they make a point and there's something we can take home and then these verses over here make another point and they're good to kind of keep out separately and we'll address those separately but then you come across something like this where you kind of see a chapter and you really don't know what to do how does the second half or in this case almost three quarters relate to those first few verses I think I have an answer to that this morning. I'm hoping you'll indulge me as we walk through it. But there's a pattern in the book of these first 11 chapters here that I believe gives us an answer to how to look at chapter 9 as well because we see the same pattern there. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the Lord's appearance to Solomon. Then we're going to talk about these accomplishments that he had. And then lastly, I'll try to put them together and explain what I believe these two have to do with each other and then what we can do with that. So let's look at the first nine verses or so. The Lord, as I said, appears to Solomon here a second time. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. Now it came about when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. Now the first time he appeared, it says here, was at Gibeon. That's in chapter 3, the first 15 verses or so. This is shortly after he had become king he went to the tabernacle there to offer up sacrifices to the Lord. He was, the Lord was pleased with that, if you remember. He told Solomon afterwards, oh, just ask me whatever you wish. And remember that Solomon asked him for a listening heart, a heart that would be inclined to walk in obedience and follow him. And obviously that pleased the Lord, and we kind of know the rest of the story there. Now the Lord spoke to Solomon a second time in chapter 6, when he began to build the temple, but he didn't actually appear to him in that instance. So what we find here is this is only the second time that the Lord appeared to Solomon. Again, he heard from him before, but there's something special about him appearing to the Lord here. And when he does, he offers Solomon an answer to what he had prayed. He offers him a promise, and then he issues him a warning. So let's go ahead and look at those. The first part of the Lord's response here is an answer to his prayer. If you remember back in chapter 8, when Solomon dedicated the temple, he prayed and asked the Lord for three primary things. He asked the Lord to keep his promises to David. 
He asked him to keep his eyes and ears open toward the temple so that he might hear and answer the prayers of the Israelites. And then he ultimately asked God to continue to forgive Israel when they would repent and cry out to him. So that was Solomon's prayer in a nutshell. And so what we find here, starting at verse 3, is the Lord's answer to that prayer. Look at verse 3 with me. The Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house, which you have built by putting my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Now, Second Chronicles chapter 7 actually gives us a lot more detail. This is just an author's summary, a one-verse summary of how the Lord answered him. So I want you to turn to Second Chronicles chapter 7 with me. Second Chronicles chapter 7. We're going to read verses 12 through 16. We'll start with verse 11. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's palace and successfully completed all that he planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and he said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered to this place, or in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. You notice there that the Lord refers to the temple as a house of sacrifice. That's because God did not intend for the temple just to be a house of prayer, just a place for them to congregate, a place where they might learn, but he intended for it to be a place of atonement and sanctification. There could be no relationship with God without atoning for their sin, and the temple would ultimately serve, first and foremost, that purpose. They would bring their sacrifices there, and the Lord would use those sacrifices to atone for their sin. That ties into the second thing we can note from this passage here, that it's the Lord's willingness to forgive. Exactly what David asked the Lord to do. The Lord promised to, says here, hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. But you notice there is a caveat to that. They'd have to humble themselves, pray, and seek his face, and then turn from their wicked ways. We find the same thing in the New Testament, don't we? Where it says that if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's a pattern we see throughout the scriptures. The final thing that we note here in his answer to the Lord, or his answer to David, is the perpetual nature of the Lord's relationship with Israel. Both of the authors, the author of 1 Kings, the author of 2 Chronicles here, stresses the fact that the Lord promised to put his name on the temple forever and to keep his eyes and his heart there perpetually. I don't believe this is so much a reference to the permanent nature of the temple because we know that that ultimately gets destroyed multiple times. Rather, it's a reference to the permanence of Jerusalem in Israel and God's plan. God has not forgotten. He still will fulfill all of his promises to Israel. So he intended to have a perpetual, ongoing relationship with Israel, even in the midst of their sin. 
in their need for repentance and restoration. Again, we have to look at the verses here that describe his name being on the temple forever. Again, not as a reference to the temple itself being permanent, but God's relationship and presence within Israel or for Israel as permanent. In fact, you don't have to necessarily turn there, but we'll get to this a little bit later when we get to chapter 11, but we see this perpetual nature again repeated in chapter 11 after he rebukes Solomon where he says, However, I will not tear away the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David for the sake of Israel, which I have chosen. God continues to repeat his perpetual love and plan on staying in the right relationship with Israel. And so as the Lord begins his response to David, he gives them an answer to his prayer of remaining faithful to Israel, hearing their prayers when they sin, offering them repentance when they cry out to him. The next thing the Lord does there is he makes a promise to Solomon. Look at chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. As for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. The Lord repeated to Solomon a promise that he made to King David back in Second Samuel chapter 7. Why don't you go ahead and turn there. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Jump down to verse 8. This is God's covenant with David. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies before you and I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again nor will the wickedness afflict them any more as formerly or the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your, prayer, or when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will also be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever, endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. David repeated that promise that God had made to him when he talked with Solomon. You don't have to go here, but... 1 Kings chapter 2, where David encourages Solomon. He reminds him of the promise that the Lord had made, but he also reminds him of the expectation that the Lord had to walk in his ways. Solomon was fully aware of that. He fully understood it because we found that he repeats that condition in chapter 8. Turn to chapter 8 with me. Verses 25 and 26. 1 Kings chapter 8. 
He's praying and he says, You have kept with your servant, my father David, that which you have promised him. Indeed, you have spoken with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand. It is to this day. Now therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your sons will take heed to their way and walk before me as you have walked. And so Solomon was keenly aware of the promises that the Lord had made to David. And he knew that those promises would also be fulfilled in him if he only walked in accordance to the Lord's commands. In our passage today, chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, the Lord once again reminds Solomon of his promise and the conditions associated with it. This is one of the things that makes the end of Solomon's life so tragic. We'll get to chapter 11 in a couple of weeks, and it's heartbreaking. The promise was his. All he had to do was remain faithful to the Lord. That was it. He was aware of God's promises. He had seen them exercised in David. He had seen them in his own life. He knew the requirements remained faithful. All he had to do was remain faithful and the Lord would do everything that he promised him. But again, as we see in chapter 11, he didn't remain faithful. So we have the Lord's promise here repeated to Solomon. He was without excuse. And that's what leads us to the third section of this portion here where the Lord issues him a warning. Chapter 9, verses 6 through through 9. But if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, and you go and you serve other gods and worship them, Then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. It's a reference to the destruction of the temple. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among people. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, Why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? And they will say, because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. And therefore the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. The Lord lists three consequences here. If Solomon and his sons turn away from him, Israel will be cut off from the land, the temple would ultimately be destroyed, and Israel would become a proverb and a byword among the peoples of the earth. That means that God would make Israel a public skeptical example to all the nations around them of what happens when they forsake the Lord and they reject his promises and his blessings. It's pretty clear in verses 8 and 9 here that those are the consequences. And again, as we look at chapter 11 a little bit later, and pretty much what's recorded in the rest of all of First and Second Kings, because from chapter 12 all the way through, the rest of 1 Kings and all of 2 Kings, we see the consequences of Solomon forsaking the Lord, just as the Lord warns here. Most of the kings, all but I believe six, walk in Solomon's path rather than in the path of King David. And as a result, Israel pays the consequence. In fact, what we see today in many respects is Israel still paying <laughs> The consequences. The Lord has been gracious in returning them to their land, but Israel has not been restored. Israel has not come to faith in Christ. They are still walking in disobedience. 
all a consequence of violating and not paying attention to the warning that the Lord issues to Solomon here. So that's what we see in the first nine verses or so, is the Lord responding to David, reminding him of the promises that he made, but also the expectations that Solomon remain faithful and walk continually before the Lord, obeying his statutes and his commandments. From here, the author now kind of, in some respects, just gives us a list now of Solomon's accomplishments and duties as king. And so there's a lot of details here I'm going to walk through and we'll read them and summarize them. And again, as we do that, you have to kind of say, well, what does this have to do with what we just read? Because it's almost like an abrupt end to the Lord's answer than all this now just this, you know, routine description of Solomon's duties. But I believe there's a reason for that. Look at verses 10 through 14. The first thing we see is that the author mentions politics. I can say it that way. Verses 10 through 14. And it came about at the end of the 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the house of the king's house. Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold according to all his desire. Then King Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. So Hiram came out from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him and, well, he didn't please, it didn't please him. <laughs> he said, what are these cities which you have given me, my brother? So they were called the land of Kabal to this day, or Kabul to this day. And Hiram sent to the king 120 talents of gold. Now, I'm not really sure what to make of this. Um, these cities were actually very close to the king's homeland, just on the border of Israel. It makes sense that if Solomon was going to give him some land, he would give him an area close to where he's at. It wouldn't give him right smack dab in the middle of Israel. And so... Um, Solomon basically gives them these cities, but the response by the king is, huh, they're kind of worthless. Now, the question is, does that say something about what Solomon gave him, or does it say something more about the king of Tyre? Maybe he expected more. I suspect that's the case. And it doesn't appear that this was really um, anything more than um, a gracious gesture on the part of Solomon. And it's because three different times in the text it says Solomon gave him the land. This wasn't a financial transaction. Even though the king gave him 120 talents of gold, it really reads more like this was a, a gift by Solomon to um, David's friend and his friend, the king of Tyre probably as a way of thanking him for the work that he had done. Because remember, Solomon had paid him for all the work and paid his, paid his workers and everything else. This was above and beyond. And it appears like a reciprocal political move, maybe. I do this nice for you, and then the king of Tyre does something nice for Solomon by giving him 120 talents of gold. Probably a way of just maintaining the relationship and, and peace between them. So it's not really a financial transaction as much as, here's my gift to you, Here's your gift to me. He goes on then, the author here, and he describes Solomon's work in defense, if you will. Look at verses 15 through 19. This is the account of the forced labor which King Solomon levied to build the house of the Lord, his own house. The Milo and the wall of Jerusalem, Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. For Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire and killed all the Canaanites who lived in the city and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuilt Gezer and all the lower Beth Horon and Balaf and Tamar in the wilderness in the land of Judah. And all the storage cities which Solomon had, um, 
had, even the cities for his chariots and the cities of his horsemen and all that it pleased Solomon to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and in all the land under his rule. Now, the reason I refer to this as his work in defense is because the cities that we're talking about here were defensive cities. They had wall, they were walled cities. It's where he kept the chariots, which were weapons of war. And so Solomon understood something about defense. And so he secured these cities on the outskirts of Jerusalem and within Jerusalem, or within Israel, um, basically as fortifications. Makes sense. We've seen elsewhere that Solomon was very good at organizing his government and political matters and defense matters and other things, and this is just one of those things. He was great at governance too. Look at verses 9 through 20, or 20 through 23. We see another example of his governance here. And for all the people who were left of the Amorites and the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, who were not of the sons of Israel, their descendants were left after them in the land whom the sons of Israel were unable to destroy utterly from from them. Solomon levied forces or forced labor even to this day. But Solomon did not make slaves of the sons of Israel, for they were men of war, his servants, his princesses, or his princes, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. So what we find here, verse 23 as well, there were the, um, these were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work, 550 who ruled over the people doing the work. So what we find here is his governance. He had raised up this massive labor force, if you will. It was forced labor. He didn't imprison or didn't enslave, I'm sorry, um, his own Israelites, but rather the Canaanites that they had refused to drive out of the lamb, he subjected to labor. He used them as forced labor. It was such a large labor force that he had to put 550 managers over it. So this is an example of his governance, as you will. This is what he used for his building projects. The cities that he just got done mentioning here with fortified walls and other things likely were built by the forced labor. Solomon understood exactly how to build a workforce that he needed. We saw his um, overseeing of, what is it, 150,000 forced laborers to build the temple in his own palace. Again, a sign of his wisdom is one of his responsibilities. We deal with that ourselves here where we expect the government to secure our borders, to secure the country and build a military, right? We get frustrated when those things aren't done. That's part of the job of a king, and so these are one of his duties here. Not only building defenses and whatnot, but in this case, raising up a labor force. How about religion? This was probably the most important one for Solomon. As king, he was to set the tone religiously for Israel. He was to be the prime example. You know, we we live in a country now where we routinely herald separation of church and state, separation of church and state. It's unfortunate that we don't oftentimes have leaders that demonstrate Christ-like qualities, because that would be a very good thing, would it not? Well, it's especially important when it comes to a place like Israel, which was truly a theocracy. So we look at uh, verse 25 here. Now three times a year Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar which he built to the Lord, burning incense with them on the altar, altar which was before the Lord, so he finished the house. This was not just the extent. The only thing mentioned here are these three annual feasts that Israel is supposed to have. These are the feasts that all Israel was supposed to come to, to the temple and offer up their sacrifices. All the eligible men were expected to travel not necessarily the women and the children, but all of the men. So those three are mentioned here, but when you get into Second Chronicles chapter 8, there's a host of other things that we're told that Solomon 
did. One was the daily requirements of two one-year-old sacrificial lambs. That's described in Exodus chapter 29. It was a requirement. So every day, two one-year-old lambs had to be sacrificed. Solomon, according to Second Chronicles 8, oversaw that. The Sabbath offerings, which included one uh, one-year-old unblemished—I'm sorry, two one-year-old blemished unblemished lambs, two tenths of an ephah of uh, fine flour mixed with oil, a grain offering, and a drink offering. Solomon was also responsible to oversee that. The new moon offerings, which occurred at the beginning of every month, they included burnt offerings, two bulls, one ram, seven one-year-old lambs without defect. Second Chronicles 8 tells us that Solomon also made sure that that was done every, every time it was due at the beginning of every month. Finally, we're told that he oversaw the divisions of the Levites in their daily duty, also the gatekeepers of the gates. And so Solomon was ultimately um, over all the priests as well to make sure that they did what they were supposed to do. And so what we find between this passage here and the Second Chronicles 8 is that Solomon was heavily involved with the religious rites and services demanded in the law. He was there to make sure they were done and he was actively involved. Everything we see about this was that he was an active participant. That he did it of his own free will and volition just as the Lord commanded. The last thing we see in this passage this morning regarding his duties and responsibilities is what I would label as commerce. Look at verses 26 through 28. King Solomon also built a fleet of ships and Ezon Geber, which is near Eloth, the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, sailors who knew the sea, along with the servants of Solomon. They went to Ophir and took 420 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. So the last duty and accomplishment here is this large fleet of ships that Solomon was able to build. Hiram had this huge shipping industry. It was well known in the Middle East, ancient Near East. Um, And so Solomon took advantage of that. Hiram sent him sailors that knew how to sail and allowed those to be used by Solomon, probably to train his own men, but also to serve on the ships. One of the purposes of the fleets was to transport gold to Jerusalem. It amounts to 17 tons in a single shipment. This was a massive shipping line. In addition, every three years we're told that the ships were used to bring Solomon more gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. That's 2 Kings chapter 10. Not sure what's up with the apes and the peacocks. Remember that Solomon was a zoologist in many respects. He would lecture on animals. Maybe that's what it was. He had these apes and peacocks brought so that he could study them. Maybe he had his own personal zoo. I'm not really sure, but it's one of the things that he did. And so the ships were used to bring and transport those types of things to Solomon. So what we find here in this second chunk of this passage is all of these responsibilities and accomplishments of Solomon. So again, the question that we have now is... So what does the first, or what do the first nine verses where we're told about this, the, the promises of God and, and how that's repeated to Solomon, this appearance of Solomon, the um, warnings that God gave Solomon, how does that chunk of verses then relate to the author just giving us a list of accomplishments that Solomon had, had done or was responsible for? Well, the more time I spent kind of digging into this... Um, And again, it's a struggle, folks, sometimes. I think Dustin knows that struggle sometimes. You kind of rack your brain. What am I going to do with this? You know, if I take out the first nine verses and just deal with that for a week, then what do I do with the next chunk of verses for the following week? Um, And the more I began to to really think through this and, and wonder about it, 
I kind of was reminded that there's this important pattern in the first 11 verses of Solomon's life, that we, or first 11 chapters, that we, um, that we actually see. Um, I'm going to have us kind of walk through this sort of a, a high-level view here, and I think you'll kind of see the pattern. Chapter 2, the first four verses, David impresses upon Solomon the importance of remaining faithful to the Lord and walking in his ways, And immediately after that, the author follows that up with a list of Solomon's acts as king to solidify his reigns. So he basically repeats this promise and the warning of remaining faithful. That's what David does. And then the author, right from there, goes on and says, now here's a list of Solomon's accomplishments in securing his kingdom. Okay. Then we get to chapter 3, the first 15 verses, and the Lord appears to Solomon the first time, and he impresses upon him, the importance of remaining faithful and walking in his ways. And then the author follows that up with the description of Solomon's acts as judge, setting up his administration, his power, his wealth, and his wisdom. Then we get to chapter 6, first, around about verses 13. The Lord speaks to Solomon when he begins the temple construction impresses upon him again the importance of remaining faithful, walking in his ways, and then the author follows that up with the building of the temple, the palace, the declaration of the temple, Solomon's prayer, the blessings, the warnings to Israel. So you see the pattern that's happening? The author has structured the first 11 chapters by periodically repeating the promises and the warnings to Solomon about the need to remain faithful to receive the Lord's blessings. And each time the author does that, he follows it up with a list of accomplishments and the success of Solomon. Do you think he's trying to build a pattern for us? Because when we get to chapter 11, what happens? We'll see this in a moment, or in a couple of weeks. Each time he shows us as Solomon is walking in obedience and you see his successes you see his wisdom you see his love for the Lord you see him walking in faithful obedience to the Lord just as his father David did and things are all going well until you get to chapter 11 and it all breaks because he doesn't so when we get to chapter 9 what we see is once again the author says the Lord appeared to Solomon gave him the promises again warned him about how to remain faithful and what happens if he doesn't and he follows it up with a list of accomplishments and things that Solomon had done he's followed that pattern for us that's the way the scriptures are sometimes sometimes the patterns that we see are just as important as the direct points and if we miss those patterns we can miss a significant teaching or understanding of the scriptures. For instance, we find throughout the scriptures this what we call the typology of Christ where um, individuals represent Christ and those typologies, while they're not blatant and overt, when you see them repeated over and over, it teaches you something about Christ. They're a foreshadowing of Christ. And what we find here is this pattern this author uses is reminding us of the need to remain faithful to the Lord. So what two takeaways. The first and foremost, I think, for us is the faithfulness and obedience of the Lord because we see that in this pattern. 
Everything about Solomon is a success. He's, he's brilliant. He's wise. He's rich. He's powerful. He's faithful. And remember, he started out at age 20 knowing nothing. And yet the Lord blesses him tremendously with all of those things because he's faithful. He's doing exactly what the Lord expects him to do. And as a result, we see the Lord's faithfulness. And so that comes through with glowing banners and lights throughout these first 11 chapters, or at least the first 10 chapters. And that should be a reminder to us that that's what the Lord promises. He'll be faithful to us, will he not? So I think we'd have to at least, as one of our takeaways, reflect on the fact that the Lord has been good and faithful to Solomon. He's good and faithful to us. It's a theme that's repeated. Now, the second takeaway, I believe, is that Solomon prospered as long as that was the case. And the question is, what does that mean for us? Is that a lesson for us? Unlike Solomon, we are not promised earthly prosperity or success. Unfortunately, there are some within Christian circles that Focus on this earthly life. Focus on prosperity, health, wealth, etc. That's not what the scriptures teach. Instead, our faithfulness will be rewarded with more important things. Now, that doesn't mean that the Lord does not, at times, grant us favor in this life, grant us wealth or success in this life. What I'm saying, though, is that it's not a foregone conclusion and that we'll have an easy, rich, wealthy life. In fact, Jesus said that we may suffer the consequences and costs of following him. We may give up everything. We may suffer death as a result. That's the reality, right? But that doesn't mean that God has not promised us something much more significant and valuable. I am reminded in the scriptures, especially because coming from the theological perspective that we do within the evangelical church, we focus an awful lot on um, the concept of eternal security and the fact that once you are saved, you are saved. God does not reverse or undo your regeneration or your justification. And I know that's a challenge for many outside evangelical circles and sometimes within evangelical circles because there are all an awful lot of warnings in the scriptures about remaining steadfast. And so how do you balance that? What do you do with that? And I've always approached it from the standpoint of, you take them both seriously. <laughs> you know, which means that while I can be assured that if I am genuinely saved, that God will not forsake me, he will not leave me, that my salvation is, is because of him and what he did, and that's why I'm secure, but also recognizing that I can be deceived, I can be walking thinking, I can be wearing the name Jesus on my shirt, and yet if I'm not really walking in obedience or remaining steadfast, this maybe I'm just fooling myself. And so that's a hard line to walk, but I'm going to read a couple of passages here. You can turn here with me, but the book of Hebrews, because... While the book of Hebrews was likely written to Jews who were struggling, it nonetheless is written to the church, meaning that it has warnings for us. And so we look at a number of passages in Hebrews. So if you turn to Hebrews, we'll start with chapter 3. 
I'm not going to do too much commentary on this because the words I believe will speak for themselves. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ, which is true, right? But then he says this, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, how might one know that he is a partaker of Christ? Well, through his steadfastness, holding fast to the beginning of assurance firm until the end. Reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says at the end of his life. One of the last things Paul says is, I've run the course. I've finished the race. I know what awaits for me. Paul's confidence, as he looked back at his life, recognized, I remain steadfast. Hebrews chapter 4, look at verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Again, he calls on us to remain steadfast so that we might receive mercy and find grace. How about chapter 6, verses 11 and 12? And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence, that's hard work, drive, so that to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. How do we inherit the promises? By not becoming sluggish. By being imitators of those who through faith and patience do just that. And so again, a call for stead. The final passage I want to read is much longer, but I believe that to understand it in its entirety is important. So I'm going to read through a chunk of these, starting in verse 23 of chapter 10. Meditate on these words as we read them. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think we will deserve who have trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant which was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming shares of those who were so treated? For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. That's the better promises that were offered. Solomon was promised many earthly things, what we're promised is a better possession and a lasting one. 
Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which is great reward, for you have need of, get this, endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. What does it require to receive these promises? Endurance. For yet in a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, in other words, does not endure, does not remain steadfast, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Time and time and time again, we are encouraged through the scriptures to remain steadfast, to not give up, to not shrink back, to remain diligent. Now again, how does that fit into this once saved, always saved? It does. Because God is faithful. But that doesn't excuse us. And I'm convinced that one of the ways we can rectify those two things is by saying, you know what? I can say with confidence that the Lord has saved me and will save me. But I can't say that with confidence if I don't stay steadfast. Because that essentially means I was deceived. Jesus himself said that when he separates the sheep from the goats, there are going to be many there that wore his name, that, that said, look, Lord, look at all the great things we did in your name. And Jesus says what to them? I didn't know you. They were self-deceived. So how do we prevent ourselves from being self-deceived? I believe that Solomon, when we get to chapter 11, was self-deceived. I think he had somehow convinced himself that building temples to other idols was perfectly fine and he could worship God and worship them at the same time. How we ever got to that point, I don't know. But how do we prevent ourselves from being in a very similar place? Steadfastness. Steadfastness. Remaining diligent. Never walking away. Never becoming comfortable. Just remembering to be steadfast. Always faithful to the Lord. Amen?